0: Your Bibles with me to the book of Amos. The scripture text for our sermon this morning will be Amos chapter 7, and I will be reading the entire chapter. These are the words of God. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, It was the latter growth after the the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel. And do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. May God bless the preaching of his word.
1: Let's pray together as we come to consider God's Word. Our Father, as always when we come to Your Word, we acknowledge our need of Your help. We wouldn't have this Word had You not revealed it to us, had You not spoken through Your prophets. We know these are not just their words, their ideas, their speculations, their interpretations, but that these are the words of the Most High God. Spoken through them and recorded here infallibly and inerrantly in our Bibles. And so, Father, as much as we are dependent upon you to reveal them, we are dependent upon you to illuminate their meaning to us. Help us now as we come. Help us to understand the meaning of your words. And much more importantly than just understanding what Amos is talking about, Father, help us to be convicted by this truth. And help us to see Christ in this truth. And help us to know, Father, the grace by which we have been saved. And help us, Father, to be transformed in our lives by the renewing of our minds. Help us, Father, not just to be hearers of Your Word, but to become doers of Your Word. And so, as we pray every week, may the words of my mouth, And may the meditations of our hearts as we come before your holy word be pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in the great name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our God. Amen. Last week in chapter 6 of the book of Amos, if you'll just think back there with me this morning as we come now to chapter 7. Last week we talked all about pride. And how the Lord God abhors, hates, loathes, detests sinful human pride. Augustine defines pride like this. He says, pride is the beginning of all sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. It is when the soul abandons Him, God, to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes instead a kind of end to itself. Here's what he means. Think about that quote. Pride is the beginning of all sin. This is what we talked about last week. It is from pride that every form of human sinfulness emerges in the life. And pride, Augustine says, is the craving for undue exaltation. To be made much of, to be thought much of, to be exalted in the eyes of others. And to be concerned with that exaltation for self more than... We are concerned with God being exalted in and through us. An undue exaltation, he says, is when the soul abandons God as its end. He means when the soul abandons God as its source of everything that it feels that it needs and desires and instead pretends that it is well enough off on its own. Or even that it is better off without God, without His Word, without His wisdom being the guide for our lives. I've got this. I can do it my way. I'll be better off if I'm doing it my way. Every time we sin, in any word, in any thought, in any deed, it comes from that self-exalting pride. Last week we talked all about how that kind of self-reliant sinful pride not only is the source of all of the sin in our lives, but it is the universal spiritual condition of every single human heart in Adam. And we talked about the fact that even now as redeemed believers, as Christians, as new creations in Christ Jesus, the residues of that sinful pride still remain in all our hearts and lives. And God abhors that pride. He hates that impulse in us to exalt ourselves, to think more highly of ourselves than we should, to try to make other people think highly of us. He hates the impulse that we have to to consider self more important than others because that's not the impulse by which Christ came and died for us. He abhors the impulse that is in us to to put our own needs in front of the needs of others and to prefer our own wills and our own desires to His will. That impulse to do what is right in our own eyes, to lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord with all our hearts and loving Him. With all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, God abhors all of that. And so we must be letting the Word of God diagnose all of the pride everywhere that it remains in the deepest recesses and crevices of the inclinations and thoughts and attitudes of our hearts And we must, by the grace of God and the power of His Word and Holy Spirit in our lives, we must be killing that pride, all of it. Or else if we're not killing it, as John Owen very famously said, it will be killing us. And that need to be killing sin in our lives with with pride at the center of the crosshairs, that's the need for what the Bible calls Repentance. Repentance. And even though that specific word repentance doesn't appear in this chapter, that is the all-important focus of Amos chapter 7. The word repent itself, it's the word shuv in the Hebrew Old Testament Scriptures. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Psalm 7 verse 12 warns. And in the Greek... New Testament Scriptures, the word repentance is the, is the word metanoia. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And He exhorted people to live their lives bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Matthew chapter 3. Paul says in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, That a godly grief over sin leads to repentance. Both of those words, the Old Testament word shuv, the New Testament word metanoia, they have the fundamental idea of turning. Turning away from one thing and to another thing. Away from self, away from pride, away from sin, and unto God and His righteousness and His holiness. Repentance means a fundamental shift, a fundamental change of orientation, of mindset, of attitude, of direction in life away from self, away from sin, and towards God and His holiness. And that is the theme that Amos is focused on here in Amos chapter 7. For six chapters now, God has exposed very, very precisely all of the sin of the nations in general, and of Israel specifically, and the pride that lies at the heart of all of that sin. And here, having gotten all the way down to the roots of human sinfulness, here now God is revealing what happens when sinful people who have had God declare to them in precise detail what their sinfulness consists of and where it all comes from, when they remain Committed still to the course, unswerving of their pride, of their sinful ways, God is revealing what happens when they don't turn. And and He's revealing what will happen invariably if they will turn. And in revealing that, He's ultimately revealing the core of His own heart so to speak, and the essence, both of His great justice and His great mercy. A.W. Tozer said, God's justice and God's mercy don't quarrel with each other. Sometimes in our minds we think that they do. We think that those things aren't compatible. We think that justice and judgment are not attributes that are consistent with a God who is loving and merciful and kind and gracious. Some people think that the God who's revealed in the Old Testament is the angry God, and the God who's revealed in the New Testament is the happier, kinder, gentler God. That the God of justice in the Old Testament somehow changed and is replaced by the God of mercy in the New Testament. That's absolutely wrong. And Tozer is absolutely right that God's justice and mercy don't quarrel with each other. They're not mutually exclusive attributes of God's character and nature. They're not opposed to one another. And in God, one does not exist ever without the other. God is just. Always. And God is merciful. Always. He doesn't stop being just. He doesn't start being merciful. He always is all that He is. So then why does God sometimes respond to sin, sometimes respond to sinners in judgment, while at other times He responds in mercy? And the answer that comes from this chapter and from everywhere else throughout Scripture, the answer is repentance. If a sinner will not repent, then God will not relent of pouring out judgment on his sin. But he reveals here that when sinners do repent, the holy, just, merciful God relents and forgives. So let's talk about what that means today and how obviously important that is for us today. In the first six verses here of Amos chapter 7, God paints two very vivid pictures for the prophet, and they're pictures of his just judgment against the sin of Israel. They're pictures of what he is fully justified to do to Israel if he wants to because of their sin. He's made his case against their sin, he's laid it all out, he's spoken of the judgment that's coming for them by way of invasion and destruction and captivity, not because he's angry and capricious, but because they're sinful and they've gone astray and earned for themselves the consequences of their sin. Amos has even, if you remember in chapter 5, Amos has already sung a funeral song over the impending death of the earthly nation of Israel. Here, God shows Amos two visions. One in verses one through three of a swarm of locusts, and then the other in verses four through six of a raging, unquenchable fire. And they're both, of course, sobering images of of impending judgment and destruction for Israel. We're already familiar with the locust thing, right? Because we've studied the book of Joel where we learned that a massive horde of locusts did bring destruction in the judgment of God against the southern kingdom of Judah. And remember, Amos is from there. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom, but he came from the south and God sent him up where he had been a sheep herder and a farmer. God sent him up to the north to proclaim the word of God. So Amos is familiar with locusts. And we learned when we were studying Joel all about how these big swarms of locusts can come and cause untold devastation to an entire nation. We saw how big they can be, how voracious locusts can be when they swarm, eating everything organic and even inorganic sometimes in their path in their frenzy they're capable of even eating through wooden doors and walls and shoving themselves into the into the cracks of mortar and stone and breaking them apart in order to get to the grain inside of silos even They start with the leaves of the trees and the crops that are grown in the fields and when they've devoured all that, they move on to the grass that grows on the ground and by the time they're done, there's just nothing left, remember? Even the cattle and the sheep herds in the fields are are wandering around confused because there's literally nothing for anyone to eat. And so the the death and the destruction is, 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 is massive. And remember that after the locusts themselves are finally finished they end up dying in mass themselves and when that happens they cause a horrible stench and they bring a terrible pestilence often as millions and millions of them die and decay and pollute everything in their wake so so especially in ancient times locusts were a huge problem and could could instantly bring Massive devastation to any kind of society. So ancient societies were all too aware of this. And so for God to speak of that kind of a disaster here through Amos, who again is from the south and has seen it happen. For God to speak of that here was was alarming to Amos. See? When God gives him this vision of judgment falling on Israel by way of a locust horde. Amos is terrified on behalf of the Israelites and he says, he pleads with God, oh Lord, don't do it. Please forgive. He says, how can Jacob stand? And he means the heritage of Jacob. He means the offspring of Jacob. He means the nation that came from Jacob. He means Israel. How can they stand? For he is so small And here's what he means. You remember how proud Israel was? How good they'd had it for so long? How safe they felt? How secure they felt in themselves? In all of their own accomplishments and achievements and in their strong houses? Well, Amos knew better. Amos knew that despite all their hubris and all their pride and all their self-sufficiencies, that if God set His sights on them, then they were doomed. Amos knew that if God sovereignly orchestrated a locust plague, then then Israel wouldn't last. They wouldn't prevail. They had no chance because in spite of all their self-sufficient pride, in reality their strength was small and pathetic and could easily literally be eaten up by a swarm of insects. And so Amos pleads here with God to forgive. And God's response in verse 3 is absolutely remarkable, isn't it? Forget the unrelentingly angry, unmerciful, capricious, hateful God of the Old Testament. The Lord, all caps, the great I Am, the sovereign faithful creator and self-existing infinite master and almighty God of the universe, when he heard Amos say, please, the Lord relented and said, it shall not be. I won't send the locusts. Then a second time, same thing happens. Verses 4 through 6, God gives Amos another vision He's not going to bring a locust swarm against Israel. Now the vision is of a massive, unquenchable fire that's going to rip through the whole nation and bring massive devastation and destruction. A judgment by fire, verse 4 says. And it would be a fire that says it would devour the great deep before it ate up the land. That means it couldn't be extinguished even with all the water in the world. And so once again... Amos is horrified by the prospect of a divine judgment against Israel by way of a fire that nobody could possibly ever put out. A fire fueled by the holiness of God. Because again, no matter how much Israel thought of their own strength and their own safety, their own military might, how much money they had in the bank to deal with whatever problem, if God unleashes a conflagration of divine judgment... They're not just going to be humbled, they're going to be incinerated. They're going to be destroyed. They're not going to be able to extinguish the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, Amos knows, will extinguish them forever if God unleashes it. So once again, Amos pleads with God for mercy, for forgiveness. Now Amos is very likely motivated... Just out of simple, first of all, human dignity and humanity, he's picturing the, the the horrific suffering that the people of Israel would have to endure, either by being subjected to a locust invasion that would bring starvation and pestilence, right a long, slow, agonizing death for thousands, tens- hundreds of thousands of people or that they would endure by being subjected to a raging inferno sweeping through the land and, and consuming, torching everything and everyone in its path. Just picturing that made Amos cringe with humanity, with compassion, with empathy, and cry out to God for mercy for Israel. I think probably Amos was motivated by that, but you know what? The the scripture doesn't tell us that. There is something that the scripture does hint at here, though, another motivation that I think the text does allude to here, which causes Amos, apart from just the simple humanity and compassion of his own human heart, to plead with God on behalf of Israel. Notice that both times here, That Amos pleads with God on behalf of Israel, he doesn't call them Israel, he calls them Jacob, reaching all the way back in time, right, of course, to their origins, to their roots. And in doing that, Amos is pleading with God with reference to God's own faithfulness to this people in having chosen them and, and, and raised them up and established them in the first place. Because these are the descendants of Jacob. These are the descendants of Jacob's father, Isaac. Isaac was the child of God's promise, the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah all the way back in the book of Genesis. When Abraham and Sarah were in their old age and Sarah had been barren all her life and unable to have children, God said, I'm going to give you a child. And they laughed at God because it seemed preposterous to them. So they named the child when he did come. Isaac, which means in Hebrew, laughter. But in spite of all of that, in spite of their inability to have a child, God fulfilled that promise with the birth of Isaac and when he did that he was he was fulfilling much more he had been promising much more hadn't he than just a baby for Abraham and Sarah he makes that clear all the way from Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 15 through chapter 17 that this promise is much more than just a a cute baby for them to enjoy together God was promising through Isaac A multitude of descendants who would come from this promised child, who would become a great nation, which would bring great blessings to every nation, every family across the face of the earth. And even in Genesis 17, God, in articulating this promise, proclaims that the promise would be guaranteed by a covenant that He has been making with Abraham, which would be an everlasting covenant. Covenant meaning uh, this promise of a of a nation of, of offspring that will bless the whole world, this promise doesn't come with an expiration date. This promise could never fail, which of course means that this promise could never be broken. And see here now, Amos being given these visions of a massive locust invasion destroying the entire nation, of a massive fire incinerating the nation entirely. Amos is thinking, if God does that, if God destroys it all, then his promise would have been broken. If the nation of Israel is destroyed, then God's promise to Abraham will have failed. Amos is thinking... So he's pleading with God not only out of compassion and humanity for the people of Israel, but also out of a sense of God's faithfulness. God, you can't do this. You can't totally destroy them because you are faithful and your promise cannot fail. See? But remember two weeks ago from chapter 5? God was already singing at the funeral. Remember? Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. And historically we know that the Assyrians, 30 years after Amos prophesied, did show up and invade the northern kingdom of Israel and lay it to waste to such a a, a complete extent that it never recovered. It was never raised back up. So... Did God's promise fail? Of course not. By no means. May it never be. We also remember from chapter 5 that God promised a remnant of people who would be saved when the earthly nation itself was brought down. The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred remaining. Remember? Remember? And historically, when the Assyrians devastated the northern kingdom, there were survivors. Many of whom fled south to Judah and Jerusalem and survived and lived there. And even though a day of judgment would come for Judah also, when the Babylonians came and invaded them and hauled so many off to captivity in Babylon, including Ezekiel, including Daniel, God promised that they would eventually be returned from that captivity. And he fulfilled that promise. Seventy years later, they did return. And eventually, from them hundreds of years later, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now think all the way forward to the New Testament scriptures where God reveals the magnificent truth that even though the earthly nation of Israel was cut off, Paul says in Romans 9, and accursed by God, which brings him great grief. But that's what happened. Their sin continued and persisted to the degree, to the extent that eventually they even killed their Messiah on a cross In Jerusalem. And Paul says that he has unceasing grief in his heart because what that means is that God has now fully and finally cut off the earthly nation and accursed them. But he says in Romans 9, even though that's true, it is not as though God's promise has failed. Because, Romans 9 verse 6, Not all who are descended by blood, by genetics, by earthly lineage from Israel belong to Israel. God reckons Israel differently. Not all are children of Abraham just because they are his physical offspring. Because Paul says it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, it's the children of promise. And who are they? Who are the children of promise who can be counted as, in God's economy, by God's accounting, children of Abraham, children of promise? Well, he explains that in Galatians chapter 3 where he says that Jesus is the true offspring that was promised to Abraham and everyone who believes in Him, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, Greek, whatever, whatever nationality, if they have faith in Jesus, then by faith in Jesus they are the offspring of Abraham and heirs according to the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And then Peter would call all those believers in Jesus, whether they're Jewish or Gentile by earthly accounting, Peter says none of that matters. What matters is you have faith in Jesus, and if you do, then you are God's holy nation and the people for his own possession They are, we are, what Paul calls in Galatians 6 and verse 16, the Israel of God. So, while the earthly nation of Israel itself did fall, never more to rise. A remnant was preserved by God's grace. Through that remnant came the Messiah, Jesus, so that even when Judah was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, The promise of God to Abraham never failed because it was gloriously fulfilled in the true Israel of God, the holy nation that's made up of people from every earthly tribe and tongue and people and nation who live by faith in Jesus, who is the true promise seed of Abraham. So God's promise did not fail. God's promise cannot fail because God is always faithful and true and even when He's working out His purposes of judgment against sin, He is working out His ultimate purposes of mercy and redemption that blow all of our expectations wide open. Through and through, the Scriptures speak of and and reveal and demonstrate the unfailing faithfulness of God. Here in Amos 7, God is revealing that He is unfailingly faithful both in judgment and in mercy. Where there is evil in This world, where there is evil anywhere in God's creation, He always faithfully deals with it. He never turns a blind eye to it. He never cavalierly sweeps it under the rug and pretends it's no big deal. Because in comparison to His infinite holiness, it's always a big deal. And He's faithful. And He's just. You don't want to worship a God who doesn't deal with sin. Who's too weak And too much of a pushover to deal with evil in his creation. God will always set aright everything that is wrong. And Amos is also very, very keen to show that God is not only concerned to deal justly with sin. He also is a God who longs in his heart to pour out mercy on sinners. Not just sometimes, but all the times. He's longing for that. Here, when Amos pleads, God relents. That word, relent. Both there in verse 3 and in verse 6, where Amos says that the the Lord relented of pouring out judgment through locusts or through fire on Israel. The the word is rooted in, in the concept of comfort it's that word nacham remember from isaiah chapter 40 right 39 chapters of judgment that's going to come and then all of a sudden bam in chapter 40 god says comfort comfort oh my people right this is that word same root nacham in hebrew and it means to when something has been like constricting you and constraining you, the trials of life, you ever feel like that? Like your your chest is tight with anxiety and sorrow and, and painfulness and pressure and, and and you almost feel like you can't breathe because things are so hard. And then all of a sudden somebody gives you some encouragement and the scriptures give you some comfort and you feel like you can breathe. That's literally what the word naham means. It means to cause to breathe again, to refresh. And that's the the root of the word that Amos uses here when it says that God relented. In this context, it means God had great compassion. In spite of them, He had great compassion on them. He had pity, and so He's giving comfort. He's causing them to be able to breathe again. With the good news that if they will repent, he will relent and turn back from his punishment. And of course we got to be very, very careful how we understand this word and this concept of God relenting with respect to God. Who's all-knowing, who's unchanging, unchangeable, right? We've talked about this before, especially in the book of Hosea. Whatever it means that God relents, it doesn't mean at all the same thing as as when we, as finite, changeable human beings, relent, right? When we relent, it's because something about us changed. My understanding changed, my feelings changed, my mind was changed, my purposes were changed. None of that can change about God because his mind, his understanding, his will, it's all perfect, it's all eternal. He's all nothing. He, he didn't learn something new. It didn't just occur to him all of a sudden. Nothing about God can ever change. So, what he's revealing here by using this word relent is, is that at the same time that he always has a just and righteous and holy hatred of sin, he also always has a compassionate and merciful heart towards sinners such that when sin first entered into this world, in the Garden of Eden, He dealt with it, didn't He? The whole creation became cursed in divine justice, but also in divine mercy. Adam and Eve weren't just destroyed instantaneously, right? And there was a promise in Genesis 3.15, right out of the gate... That one day into this cursed world, there would come from the woman a seed who would endure the bruising of his own heel in crushing the head of the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. That's, that's just an, a very early pr- prototypical foreshadowing. We call it the the, prot-evangelion, the the prototypical gospel, the first hint of it. Genesis 3.15 that Jesus would come and purchase redemption and defeat Satan by the shedding of his own blood. So that see all along, all throughout history even as the whole world has been groaning under the curse of sin, even as God has been bringing divine judgment to bear more and more, he has at the same time been delaying the fullness of his final judgment in order that He might day by day by day, year after year, throughout the millennia, bring His mercy to bear so that sinners could be forgiven and redeemed and saved if they would turn to Him. So in this world full of wickedness and full of evil of every conceivable kind, God is already bringing judgment to bear. And He reveals that He will one day bring final judgment to bear. And... Until that day when Jesus returns, God is being patient, God is offering mercy, God is granting forgiveness to anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and turn to him through faith in Jesus. Because the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven by which anyone can ever be saved. So you got to keep them both together, right? In His justice, God will destroy all evil and anyone and everyone who will not repent of their sin and come to Him through faith in Christ. And in His great mercy, God will relent of judging anyone who does repent and come to Him through faith in Jesus. He will forgive all who turn and who repent, and who believe. But make no mistake, and and we get this wrong a lot of times, in the Bible, and in the nature of God, and according to His infallible ways, there can be no forgiveness apart from true repentance. Salvation is a free gift, absolutely. We cannot, we do not earn it, absolutely. But forgiveness from sin does not come apart from repentance from sin. And this is what God is proclaiming to Amos. And through Amos, in another vision that he gives to the prophet in verses 7 through 9 here. This time, a third vision, it's a a vision, he says, of a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is. Anybody who's done any kind of building or, or construction or contracting work, some of you have worked in that field, you know what a plumb line is. If you're building a fence, more importantly, as, as God pictures here, if you're building a wall, right, that's going to be a part of a house, you have to have a way of making sure that the wall is standing straight and not leaning, Right? You can't have your wall leaning. You can't have your wall be not straight because if one wall's not straight, and then you build with reference to that wall, then nothing's straight. The whole house. We've you've been in houses like that. You can't make. How do I? Because everything's crooked. And if if walls are leaning, they're not safe, are they? Because gravity. <laughs> eventually it will continue to pull and pull and pull at a leaning wall until it's leaning far enough that it'll fall over and hurt somebody. So builders need some way of making sure that the wall's not leaning. And in ancient times and even still now, I remember building a fence with my dad using a plumb line. It's just a piece of string with a heavy weight attached to the end of it and you suspend it up above the ground and that weight pulls the string straight down. So the string is straight relative to the earth because of gravity. And you build your wall according to that string and your wall will be straight and level and not leaning. But if you're a careless builder and you don't build your wall straight so it's leaning, it's not safe. So what do you do if you're a contractor and you go and you see that this wall is precariously leaning? It's not a. What do you do? You can't straighten the wall. What do you do? You tear it down and you rebuild it. So, see, this image of the plumb line that God gives to Amos here is a a metaphor for the spiritual condition of Israel and of sinful human beings in general. In our sin, we're out of plumb. See? We're not straight. We're not level relative to the reality of the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so Israel, God said, they're a leaning wall that needs to be torn down. He's showing Amos that it's because of their sin that God's judgment must be brought to bear. God's not capricious. God's not unreasonable. God's not a tyrant. God doesn't just fly off into blind rages and overreact to little things. God measures Precisely, God responds justly and faithfully always and at the same time relents when sinners repent because he's merciful and kind and he doesn't enjoy tearing down the wall. As I live, declares the Lord in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not like gleefully rubbing his hands because he gets to destroy people. But oh, that the wicked would turn, repent from his evil way and live. I love, love, love that verse. That is the heart of God. He wants, he desires, he longs for people to turn from their sinful ways and receive the free outpouring of his mercy and grace and live instead of facing the eternal justice of his righteous judgment against sin. And Paul tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? It's His grace that even enables us to repent in the first place. So that if we turn and receive the fullness of His forgiveness, then there will come a day when, when we're learning more and more from His Scripture, the truth that he even, he even gave us the kindness to be able to do that. Because we were dead and we were blind. And He raised us up just like Lazarus out of that tomb. He gives freely to anyone who will receive this life. And all of us, all of us are out of plumb by definition. God gives His righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes from God to cover us and declare us righteous even though we're sinners. This is the heart of God. God hates sin. God loves righteousness. God loves justice. And God loves to lavish mercy on sinners. And he's giving the grace and forgiveness and justification as a gift to anyone who will turn from their sin and turn to him and receive it through faith alone. Anyone. So why why wouldn't someone? Why wouldn't everyone turn from their sin and turn to God and live? Why wouldn't everyone repent and get squared up by God's grace alone through the righteousness that he gives? Why wouldn't everyone receive this merciful forgiveness? Why would anyone remain in their sin and be torn down in the judgment of God? God says, I take no pleasure in destroying the wicked. I wish that you would all turn, but guess what? They didn't in Ezekiel's day. Why? Why? Now well, the answer comes in the rest of the chapter here and it's be, it's it's because of this it's because the crookedness of human sin is rooted to the foolishness of human pride. Pride says, I don't need God. I don't need God's grace. I don't I don't particularly want God's right. I don't particularly want God telling me how to live my life. I'm good. All on my own. And the fool may even go so far in his foolish pride as to say, I don't even believe there is a God. The God who reveals himself in the Bible, I don't even think he's real. He's certainly not the God for me. And the reason, always, is because the God who reveals himself in the Bible is not the God that prideful sinners want. And you take that from a prideful sinner who was saved by grace alone through faith alone, whose eyes were opened. I would have been happy when I was an unbeliever worshiping any God except for the one true God. And I was very happy to worship my own desires and and me and to do what was right in my own eyes instead of worshiping and serving him. Because he is perfect. Holy, holy, holy. All the other gods of all the other religions, all the false gods, all of them are imperfect. They're like, they're like the superheroes in the Marvel movies. Right? They all have superhuman powers and abilities, but they are also deeply, deeply flawed, just like us and even more than us. And see, that makes them more familiar to us. That makes them more comfortable for us. That makes them more convenient for proud sinners to identify with. And the height of comfortable, convenient religion and worship is the religion and worship of self. That's why the number one requested song to be sung at funerals in America is not Amazing Grace, but what? I'll do it my way. That's truth. Because the human heart is foolishly proud and sinful. Just like Amaziah's foolish, proud heart was here at the end of Amos chapter 7. Amaziah was the high priest of the nation of Israel during this time when Amos is proclaiming God, your boss, is going to come here and take accounts. And close them all. I mean, so from an earthly perspective, remember, this was a time when, when things by their own estimation and accounting were going great, right? By every worldly metric. Politically, they'd been successful in putting down their enemies. The economy was booming. People were living large, at least the people that, that mattered in their estimation, right? The cows of Bashan and the noble men of the nation and the royalty and the priests. Everyone who was in charge was doing great. Amaziah was one of those. Upper echelon. Kind of a big deal. Living comfortably and and turning a blind eye to all of the exploitation and all of the injustice that was festering in the land and all of the idolatry. As the high priest, he should have been the one guy insisting on holiness and righteousness and mercy and love and purity. But he was happy to ignore the absence of all of that because it made his own life more comfortable. So when Amos, who's not kind of a big deal, he's, he's who? He came from where? He did what? He was a shepherd and a dresser of figs from Tekoa a little village down in the southern kingdom, and he shows up here in the north and he starts preaching the word of God and calling out all the sin and wickedness and idolatry and proclaiming that God hates all of that and telling people to stop living that way and to turn from all of it because the judgment of God's coming. And unless they turn and repent, they're going to get caught up in it. When Amos shows up preaching all of that, he's not exactly the the most popular guy in Samaria, right? Right? If he built a church, no one would go there. Especially among the people who had been living it up in all their self-reliant immorality and self-indulgent idolatry and wanton wickedness. And Amaziah was one of those guys. Again, he should have been the one to take a stand. But he didn't because his own heart was polluted with foolish pride. And so when God spoke through Amos, Amaziah shuts him down. I don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. Get out of here. Go home. Literally is is what Amaziah says. He accuses Amos of conspiracy against Israel and the king in verses 10 and 11. He tells Amos to go back home to Judah in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, Amaziah implies that Amos is, is really only in the prophecy business for money. So, so go, no, nobody wants to buy your message here. Go back home to Judah and preach that and make your bread there. And in verse 13, there's even sort of a veiled threat, right? Don't ever again prophesy at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary. And this is the temple of his kingdom. You keep talking like that, he's going to have your head. These are strong, arrogant, hypocritical words for a high priest who himself is going to have to answer to God because judgment begins in the house of God. So Amaziah is one of these guys whose whose pride is is malignant, right? Modern psychology would call him a a narcissist at least. He's got that kind of dominant, domineering arrogance and deep-seated need for control and propensity towards defensiveness when he's challenged that Mark's that kind of a person. He's a power broker. He's a master manipulator. And that's what he's trying to do to Amos, right? He's trying to intimidate him. He's trying to shut him up. He's trying to get rid of him because this message is inconvenient to the luxurious worldly lifestyle that Amaziah has been enjoying. Amos won't be intimidated. And you know why? Because Amos understood that Amaziah's attack on him really didn't have anything to do with him, with Amos. Amos understood that Amaziah's rejection of him ultimately had nothing to do with him, with Amos. Amaziah was shaking his fist at God. Amaziah was rejecting the word of God, the will of God, the law of God, the sovereign authority of God. All of that is what Amos means in verses 14 through 16. Where he's basically saying, I'm, I'm nothing special. I know that. I'm just a sheep herder. I'm not here because of, of any kind of superiority between me and you. I'm just here because God sent me here. I'm just saying what God told me to say. And unlike you, Amaziah, I knew better than to defy God. Amos is saying, look, this is God's word. You reject it at your peril. And notice that the words of verse 17 are not the words of Amos. They are the thus says the Lord words. As God spells out in no uncertain terms the judgment that's not just going to come against Israel but against Amaziah and his family specifically. Because Amaziah and Israel at large refuses to repent, God will not relent. The unrelenting judgment of God comes always only because of the stubborn, unrepentant, hard-hearted, prideful sin of image-bearing people. But where sinners repent, the merciful God of grace relents. And forgiveness flows free. So it's not hard to see, once again, how everything in this chapter ultimately is pointing like a big flashing neon sign straight to Jesus, right? Because this sinful, stubborn, self-reliant pride that God is exposing and diagnosing and condemning in these chapters and, and that Amaziah is so exhibiting here, that's bound up in the hearts of all human beings. We all want it our way. We all shake our fists at the Almighty. We all cast His word away from us when we decide it's inconvenient for us. And ultimately what's being revealed here isn't just that in Israel's unrepentant pride they had stored up the judgment of God for themselves. It's, it's that through them The holy God who desires for all to come to repentance so that he might relent, he's the one who in the fullness of time sent his only begotten Son into the world so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the one who not only pleads the mercy of God towards sinners like Amos did, but grants it as the incarnate God himself, who laid down his life to take our sins upon himself so that by trusting in him, we might be saved. Jesus is the ultimate plumb line who defines the righteousness of God, who is the righteousness of God, who gives the righteousness of God that we need in order for God to say, you measure up, you're square with me in justification and in sanctification, as now the walls of our lives are being measured and made square by Him, by His righteousness, by His purity, by His living, active Word, by His Holy Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which we're built. Jesus is the master builder, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The only one who can make straight everything that in our sin we've made crooked. He's the true seed of Abraham. He's the faithful promiser. He's the promise. He's the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. He's the true Israel. He's the only way of wisdom and forgiveness and redemption and hope. He's the only truth, the fullness of the revelation of all of God's goodness and holiness and justice and mercy and love. He's the only life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the only one who gives life. And he gives it abundantly. And he gives it freely to all who will turn to him and believe. Look, if, if someone is here today and doesn't know him, hasn't turned to him, still thinks I'm, I'm pretty good compared to you know, Hitler and all the real bad people out there. I'm okay. My life's square enough. Is it plumb according to the holiness of God? None of it is. None of ours are. If there's someone here today who hasn't yet turned from the sinful, prideful, all-do-it-my-way life of looking for meaning and happiness and satisfaction in life on your terms, doing what's right in your own eyes, living for self instead of Him, living for worldly pleasures rather than the glory of God, then I pray that you hear this loud and clear today that the wrath of God pours down from heaven against all of that pride and selfishness and unrighteousness of all of us. None of us are better. All of us deserve all of that. There's coming a day of of ultimate reckoning when he's going to call all accounts to be closed. All people will answer to him, For whether or not we loved Him and honored Him and trusted Him and served Him and lived our lives perfectly plumb to His holiness. And every day until that day is a day of favor where He is patiently waiting and pleading for all people to turn from their pride, from their self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and self-serving Lives to receive from Him mercy as a free gift. And the forgiveness and the grace that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone who already knows that, and who's here celebrating that, mercy and love and forgiveness and, and the life that our Savior and our Lord has so freely given, let His great kindness lead you every single day more and more and more to greater heights of humility as you see the sin that remains and recognize that Jesus died for all of it and greater heights of repentance, of putting that stubborn me first, it's my life kind of pride of Amaziah that remains in us all, putting it to death every single day. We got to stop, so let's do that. And let's pray and let's sing and let's come to this table where we celebrate the free gift of God's love and grace through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, for our sin. Our God and our Father, make us grateful in our hearts that when we repented, You relented, that Your wrath was turned away from us by the perfect and all-sufficient work and sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, those of us who have repented know that it was even by your grace that we were made able to do that, that that was a part of the gift too. And so, Father, we are grateful. And we ask that you would stir gratitude in our hearts as we come to the table and that you would make us thankful and that you would give us a love for you that is akin to the love with which you have loved us and that You would chase away all the vestiges of sin in our lives, and that You would teach us to live for the sake of Your glory, in humility, and in gratitude, and in love. May our lives honor You. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to page 12.